Hello, my name is Evan Jacobs and welcome to the Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir Aftermath podcast. These interviews are part of an ongoing series chronicling the hardcore punk music scene in Orange County, California and sometimes elsewhere. They are an addendum to the film Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir. This is a documentary I made that chronicles the 1990s hardcore punk scene. You can stream Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir on Vimeo. For $2 a month, you can watch every Anadimia film by subscribing to Anadimia Films Unlimited on Vimeo. Links for all this stuff are in each episode description. To support this podcast, please like, rate, and review it. Also, please subscribe to Anadimia Films TV on YouTube, where you can view all of these podcasts in their original video form. But now, okay, so then talking about this isn't me and and be, because that isn't, at least in my mind, looking at that cover, looking at the title, that that isn't overtly political, at least in my mind. And it, but who knows, it may have been in yours. But you've explained elsewhere, and I, I, I was curious, why the shoes on that cover? Because I know that that means something. But well, well. Kevin Panner told me one time that when people would buy vans in Orange County, there were a couple different types you would buy. And the low-top black off the walls, those were Omahonies. You are buying Omahonies if you got those, right? Cool. You know, style matters. But uh, the simple fact of the matter is I was neck deep in a real resentment of the label-based, fashion-based codifying of hardcore presentation that I saw particularly from New York at the time. And the idea that California was developing its own codes and its own standards was bothersome to me because this sense of alienation and this pushback and this rebellion personifies not these aesthetic markers, not these style choices. So it was like, you know, these shoes, this black on black, which is, you know, something that very much appeals to me. This isn't me. This isn't the point of the record. This isn't the statement we're here to make. This is the window dressing. Now the song is, is something slightly more in depth, which just has to do with self-realization and accepting that you're human and getting past any ignorant belief that you're a superhero. You know, we a big part of social conscience in the late 80s and early 90s seemed to be this messiah complex, which I don't think is necessary to you don't you you needn't be a holy person to present a righteous opinion. And you certainly need to present yourself as one. You know, I, I think that's really interesting because this isn't me. What you're saying is this grand, like, I mean, it, it's a big, it's an overarching theme that I think follows that record. It's like an umbrella, I think. But that cover, just the simplicity of that cover, it, it, it's a really interesting contrast. Well, I, shot the, I shot the photo, those are my shoes, and it's on my bed. Like, I think it's a nice piece of work. I'm very proud of it. And I had a really limited skill set back then. But that's all almost just happenstance, you know? Like, gotcha. It, it, rather than be overly intellectual, I should just say, yeah, it turned out cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, looking at something like Destroy the Dream, and we're, we're, we're in which an is on- a song, Which is a song I don't think lasted live more than one show. But it's... I mean, you could say that it's sort of, I mean, it, 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 it is as relevant then as it, as it is now. 
And that one might be more so. Right. I mean, as, as adults, I think the concept of wage slavery or being nailed down to our financial needs is much more relevant now. I mean, most of us were living in the houses we grew up in when that song was written. It's 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 interesting to me because and I I I wonder if there's I mean there's got to be something written about this somewhere so I'm not breaking new ground saying this but like I think that COVID really and the fact that a lot of people were forced to reassess so many things I never um I never like 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 so many people this summer there were so many emails from the school district that I work for that came out of people retiring. And these were people that I, that I know have more time to work. And even people that I speak to that are our age and a little bit older, they're, ta- they're looking at retirement. Everyone's kind of looking to get out sooner, it seems. I'm just one, I'm, I, I, I really just sort of wonder, like, is that whole idea of, you know, you work your whole life and then you retire? Like, like are people going for that more now? Like, what is your thought about that? I don't that? know how the hell they're pulling it off. Mm-hmm. I mean, I make more money now than I've ever made. And yeah, over the course of the last year, I assumed the lion's share of my father's bills. But his bills really aren't that much. An 83-year-old man with Medicare Medi-Cal has a surprising amount of his ass covered by the state. Um, but still, I'm spending more out of necessity than I ever have, but I'm making considerably more than I ever have, have right? Mm-hmm. We're still not. And I, I don't envision how I'll ever be able to retire. Ever? Like, you know... No, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see how it could be financially possible. Gotcha. You know, I, I have, that's, and you were in a similar situation. You, you sort of inherited the home you grew up in and you have come to benefit from the responsibility of people who you were once their dependent and now their work, whether they executed it well or not. Now it's the roof over your head. Well, I, I, I happened into that and kept ignorantly selling those houses and walking away from it and, buying businesses and pursuing my own ambition, my, my own ambitions and all of those things are gone, you know, and there is no family. There is no spouse to split these bills with. There is no offspring to catch me when I fall later to perform the task I'm performing for my father. So I better get good at some kind of desk work because these knees aren't going to last forever. <laughs> gotcha. No, no, no. Gotcha. Gotcha. When you did the naked face, Mm-hmm. What was the reaction of the band like hearing you sing like that? Because that, I mean, it's called the naked face, but you're very naked as a performer when you're doing that. And well, you so my harshest, my harshest critic in that band was always Kevin Murphy, but he was also the one when he would say something kind. It made me, you know, glow, right? And I always got the impression the slow parts of that song. I just did something, right? that he would prefer very clumsy, drunken orthodoncher to listening to that. But he said that when I open up and when I scream and they're all I'm saying, he said that gives him the chills even long after it had been recorded and it came out. And that's one of that coming from that guy. That's one of the greatest musical compliments I ever got. That's the only reaction from the band. I really remember what I remember is I was like, they were already making fun of you and saying you sound like cross between Sean Stern and Sinatra when they, they heard me trying to sing live at the shows and trying to do a melody that was nothing like Carrie Nation. And then I went even slower. Right? It turned out to be our most popular song, hands down. You know, like, you get this great sing-along during those homophobic because people wanted to present themselves as 
progressive and on the cusp of things, but those same people were calling their friends fags in the parking lot. It was sort of this, this faux enlightenment. But everybody had their heart broken and everybody felt helpless and everybody felt like they couldn't have what they wanted in life. So people would go fucking batshit in the second half of The Naked Face. And that meant the world to me. You know, you, you mentioned that that enlightenment, which segues nice mm-hmm. into my question about those homophobic. Because, like, I look at you, Kevin Murphy, some other guys. There was a You guys had a wokeness in the 90s that mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I was unwoke. I just, there were just things that I didn't think about. Like, if, if I heard people use the term fag, it didn't, like, oh, you know, I, there wasn't the, oh, like, the alarm bell that goes off. Now, when I work in a middle school and hear students say that to one another, and I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. No. Right. Like, so where did that come from? Well, I, think, I think it was multifaceted. And when you say me and Kevin and even, you know, Mario shared those convictions and so did Josh. But I think particularly, I know for sure in Kevin has cases, but we were fairly sensitive, maybe even hypersensitive guys, like fairly vulnerable, easily broken guys. Now, I was in some physically large bands, you know, some, some guerrilla core, you know, of my own. And I was a high school football player and I was a God awful boxer in my early teens. And I've always had some anger issues and I'm a missing teeth and can't use my left hand quite correctly because there's been plenty of violence in my life, but I've always been really tuned into other people's hurt and alienation or anything that make, made people feel like they were on the outside. Just always broke my heart. And how did I translate pain in my poor, questionable state of emotional development? Angrily. You know, I respond to it angrily. I've always been the anti-bully bully. You know, those homophobic was kind of that. You know, I did know some people had those feelings. I sometimes wondered whether I had my own curiosities on that front. But the one thing I did know is that it wasn't accepted in the world. You know, and so that's on that specific issue. Now that overall sort of liberal, maybe left-leaning, maybe not liberal, maybe humanist trend in 401. I think we were just lucky to know each other. I don't think it had to do with any shared experience between us. Yeah, and I only didn't bring up Mario and Josh just because I never actually, like, spoke with them about that. Your, your distaste for rhythm sections and your dislike for those two guys <laughs> is legendary. So don't worry about it. Especially Stanton. Stanton yeah, and I, we can't be yeah. in the same room together. Yeah, let's, let's not reconstruct. Let's not whitewash. <laughs> Um, it's interesting that you bring that up about, about the whole being the anti-bully bully guy, just mm-hmm. because, um, one thing that I've always found interesting about you when you've like relayed stories to me about instances where you've had to kind of let certain people know that certain things weren't okay. Mm-hmm. You let them know that. And then it, you would sort of realize that like, not that you'd hurt them, but that they like, like that they were really like being receptive to like what you were doing and that, okay. and that, and that it was going to stop. And then in the midst of you sort of showing them, Hey, you don't act that way. You would sort of feel bad for them. Sure. And that, that aspect of your personality has always been intriguing to me because well, you, you and I have a ton of shared acquaintances. And you know, some of them are not my favorite people in the world, or even if that seems a little bit harsh, they're not people I'm necessarily comfortable around. But I know that you also know this. You and I can sit around and make each other laugh and be kind of off color and talk 
some amazing shit over the cell phone, right? But you know that I can't stand to hurt people's feelings. Right. Like, even, even people who I don't necessarily like to be around, if I end up hearing that something I've said reached them when I didn't want it to or when right. it was intended only for you and I's private amusement, oh, I feel awful. I feel like I should just go die under a bridge somewhere. It's... I went from really tiny private schools. My mother didn't have money, but there were little mom-and-pop private schools in Orange County when I was growing up that, you, that wouldn't break the family bank, right? Not even so modern just, day? Not even, like, because I always thought that was, I'm, like... I'm talking when I was in elementary school. Oh, okay. Okay? And they were little classrooms of, like, eight or nine people. Then my mother, who was raised Protestant, somehow thought, she, as I was getting older, she should acknowledge my heritage, which I was, you know, I came from a pronounced Irish Catholic family. And she enrolled me at St. Simon and Jude. Big Catholic school, bigger classes harsher social structure and it ate me alive there was a girl there that, that made fun of me all the time and of course needless to say because she was hurting me and peeling scabs i developed a huge crush on her you know that went nowhere um i picked fights with guys who would pick on me before i knew how to fight and i would get my ass kicked which made me ostracized horribly you know which made the situation even worse that's what drove me to boxing and things like that um i've always Really, until punk rock, I've always felt like an outsider, you know, and I've and I and I found it painful. My first initial attempts at bands, at fanzines, everything used to circle around this acronym, the SIC, which was Social Identity Crisis, because I couldn't think of a single situation there was sick press, single situation where I felt natural or well, like where I felt normal. And if you'll think about our gr larger group of friends here and. You know, a quick nod to guys who annoy the shit out of me online, but who I find amusing in, in person. You know, if like the Sloth Crew guys have a big outing, or Nelson and his friends, or a bunch of old people from hardcore get together, or there's a thing every year at Highways where everybody gets together, right? I end up in the corner, quiet, sitting by myself and waiting for the world to come to me, because even after 40 years, my social instincts have just not improved much. I still, I'm better on the mic than I am in the real world. You know, well, do you think also that some of the reason why you've kind of been a bit more uh, vocal about certain people that that we know in certain bands that you've known for decades, kind of not playing new music, not writing new music is because, you know, you mentioned about getting into punk rock and having it, you know, kind of not finding a place where you felt at home and comfortable and that. Maybe. Well, I feel like a lot of people that I came up with, we found each other because we had been drawn to the need to shock the norm and to upset the apple cart, right? Mm. And their careers, at least creatively, have evolved into assuring the world that they will, in fact, bring the apple cart they expect with those same beautiful red apples they've come to love and adore. <laughs> well, I'm still here to knock the fucking thing over and try and find oranges. <laughs> 